Well, it's the first episode of 2020. It's really exciting to be kicking off a new year, especially with a ring like that, 2020. It's that time of year when many of us are testing our New Year's resolutions. Now, hopefully, because it's the first of the month of January, hopefully you're still holding on at this point. Today's episode is about riding, travel, photography, and more. There's a lot to learn in this one. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW has four locations. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door the moment you order. MAXBMW.com The Cycle Pump Tire Inflator has been proven to be the best motorcycle pump in the business. It's made by Best Rest Products, along with the Tire Iron, Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and a bunch of other moto gear. CyclePump.com chance losing your gear because your straps loosened or failed get green chili adventure gear heavy duty american-made innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles and you can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage with their system greenchiliadv.com you'll get way more miles from your chain and sprockets by using the motobreeze chain oiler that's powered by wind pressure no electrical or vacuum connections puts the oil into a felt pad which delivers it to your chain one ounce of oil gets you a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. Motobreeze.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manning. I'm Phil. Ted Simon. Austin. Barack Nagan has what many would say is a dream job. He's a professional photographer, filmmaker. He's documented adventure trips for television and for National Geographic. He's been riding motorcycles around the world for over 30 years, always camera in hand. And on top of all this, he's a motorcycle tour guide. sitting in my living room in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, my name is Barack Nagan. I'm originally from Israel. Uh, I currently live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And by profession, I'm a, I have a small uh, photography business. I do primarily video production work, uh, the occasional documentaries, and I also uh, staff tours for a motorcycle tour company. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you for having me. You said photography business and you said video. Is it, does everybody just continue or consider that photography nowadays? Well, I think I think it's kind of packaged in photography. So instead of, because I, I actually have kind of a broad scope of things that I do, stills photography and I, te- I used to teach photography and I do video production and I do short films and, you know, commercial work and I fly drones. And so I, I think photography for me just kind of encompasses uh, that whole section of media. I, my, my company is High Desert Media. So I, I, I wanted a, a name that kind of encompassed media uh, because that's kind of a, a better umbrella for that, uh, for this type of work. I remember some reading um, some time ago about photographers and, and uh, I mean, this might, this might've been maybe seven or eight years ago. And I remember it was sort of like a big push that were, they were saying that, Hey, uh, still shooters, you got to do video. And I remember reading that article. It was like an urgent thing saying photographers cannot survive now on just taking photographs. We've got to get into video. Yeah. And that's, uh, luckily for me, I, um, I was drawn to video naturally. So initially I, I got a stills camera when I was 18 and that was the best thing that happened to me at the time. I, I just started going nuts and it, it kind of involved, evolved into, nature and landscape photography, because I, I loved going out and hiking with my friends and going out into nature. And, and nature was really my first, my first passion with photography. Um, and then I started, I got the motorcycle, started doing trips with my buddies. And I thought, man, how cool would it be to document these trips um, with a video camera? And so I got a little video camera. 
And so by the time I went traveling after the military, I, um, I had both stills and video and I had done some, some basic editing as well. And so this continued to evolve and, uh, yes, I pretty much do, um, anything stills, anything video plus video editing as well. I want to ask you more about um, the video and photography, but first I'm going to jump back here. You were born in the U.S. but brought up in in Israel. Is that, is that was that right? Yeah, I was I was two weeks old when my my parents uh, relocated back uh, back to Israel. So, so so you're you're U.S. citizen and Israeli. Yes, and but I'm I'm also U.S. citizen because of my mother because she's she's American. My father's Israeli. So at the time, I would have gotten my uh, U.S. citizenship automatically anyway. What was it like growing up in Israel? Um, interesting. A lot of people ask me, I think it would be like growing up any other place, um, in the Western world. Um, for me, Israel is normal. So I get a lot of questions around, well, is it safe? You know, is it, isn't it scary? Aren't you being bombed every day? And the answer is yes, it's safe. No, we're not being bombed every day, (laughs) but, uh, it's, it's normal. You know, I think, uh, growing up, I, I, it's probably very more similar to growing up in the United States and Canada, than people tend tend to think. You know, went to went to kindergarten, went to school, twelfth uh, grade, graduated graduated high school, and then um, joined the military, which is what everybody in Israel does. Uh, but I think I think what's different about Israel is that you're you're very aware of the the geopolitical <laughs> situation. Uh, it being such a small country with such a history of uh, of violence with the, with the surrounding Arab countries. And so there's a, there's a heightened sense of, uh, patriotism, I think. And, um, you know, you know, there's no, there's no question, at least while I was growing up, there was no question. We all knew, um, we were going to go to the military and we were perfectly good with that. And there was, there was a purpose in that. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, it isn't like that in Canada. It's not like that in the States where you're, you're not forced to go into the military. And, and when you hear this, I think from someone who, who doesn't grow up in a, in a country where you're, you're, I say forced, required, I guess is a better word, to go into the military and serve your time there, it seems very intrusive. I mean, just the whole idea at the age of 18 years old that you're going to be sort of sent off to spend the next two or three years doing something that's really not your choice. But from what you're describing there, it, it's um, it, it sounds like it's that that thing of um, it's perspective. You know, if you if you are born in the mountains, you're used to the mountains. If you're born uh, at the ocean side, you're used to the ocean. And when you travel to the other extremes, that's when you say, "Wow, this is this is really something different." Yeah, and and I think um, growing up in Israel, it's kind of a given. It's not even it's not that it's not even a choice. You don't think about it. Oh man, I'm going to be 18 years old. I'm going to have to go into the military, and that's a bummer. It's it's almost something that you look forward to because everybody does it. And uh, one thing that's that's great about uh, Israel as, as a as a community is that it, because it it's a small country with a small population, the military and the military service connects everybody. Um, 99% of people in Israel are connected by a second degree. Meaning if you meet somebody who's an Israeli, even just traveling abroad, uh, you'd say, Hey, where, where are you from? And they'll say, Oh, I'm from, uh, you know, some little, I'm from Netanya. So the the second question is always, Oh, do you know so-and-so because, because you, you serve, there's, it's such a, a melting pot of people you serve. You know, you serve with thousands of people from all over the country. And so there's a there's a very strong sense of, of community, even after you you get out from the re- the regular army. You know, most people continue doing uh, reserve duty. But there's that sense of uh, we're just kind of a huge family. There's a lot of infighting. <laughs> there's a lot of infighting in Israel. But, you know, there's something that kind of connects most Israelis. And, and it's that it's that, you know, that. Um, uh, combined mutual purpose. What are Israelis like? Mm. You know, the is, Israelis are also called sabras, and sabras is the is the cactus fruit, and so it's a uh, it, it's the cool. cactus fruit. Yeah, the cactus fruit. So meaning that they're prickly. Yeah, the prickly pear fruit is prickly on the outside and sweet on the inside, and that's how. <laughs> That's how Israelis like to describe themselves. 
Um, uh, Israelis in general are very, um, they, they can be very in your face. They're very matter of fact. They will say what they think. And it's very obvious. Like if you turn, if you are ever witness to like an a parliamentary argument or even a, an interview on a news or a show on, on TV, it almost sounds like people are fighting all the time. <laughs> Um, but the, but the, the nice thing about it is that people, it'll sound like they're, they're fighting, but then they just, they, it, it, they just move on. It's, you know, you're just saying what you think and you move on. And so I think on a, a lot of, a lot of, um, people who, who meet Israelis find them, this is a huge generalization, right? But a lot of people find Israelis to be kind of rough around the edges and almost too direct. Um, on the other hand, I think one of the things, and this kind of goes back to the military and, and like the closeness of the uh, the, connect, the family connection. Um, I, I the, the friendships are are intense and they last a, a lifetime. So I know you know my some of my best friends are people that I I know since I was eighteen because you know we served together in the military and you go through a lot of really intense um, kind of bonding experiences. Don't you find the same thing though when you're, I mean, if you're very direct and, and quick to, to give your opinion, don't you find that you make enemies or at least people you don't like that much and it sort of stays that way? Um, well, I, I don't find that. I think I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not a typical Israeli. You know, my, my friends always used to make fun of me, uh, growing up because I, I grew up in a half American, uh, home. My, my friends would say, oh, you're such an American. And Which they, was an insult, I'm sure, to it, you. Well, it was, a, it was an insult, but it, but it was f- for the wrong reasons. Why am I such an American? Because I'm so polite. Right. That's what I mean. I, it's not so much the, the American part is that you're not Israeli. You're not pure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm too soft. You know, I, I'm kind and I'm accommodating and I, you know, I, I talk nicely. <laughs> and so that, that was the, that was the thing. But, you know, having lived in, in the States, a lot, a lot of times, um, people who grew up in the States, you know, I'll say something and I can see them kind of take a step back because it was like way too direct for that, for that specific moment. But yeah. You don't seem real prickly on the outside to me. At least that's not what I'm getting. Right. I bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) So motorcycling, where do you find your first motorcycle and what's it like to ride in Israel? So, um, I, growing up, my, my buddies and I, we would, we'd have a route that we'd go, whenever we'd go to school, we would walk past on the way to the bus station, we'd hitch a ride into the big town. And then we'd walk past this, um, uh, motorcycle shop that was also a motorcycle licensing facility. So they had motorcycles that the instructors would take people out and they'd learn. And, and every time we'd stop and these were, were unbelievably beautiful, fantastic Suzuki 400s. (laughs) Um, that they like GS 400 or something like that, you know, twin cylinders. And they were like the, the most incredible piece of art for us. So we'd, we'd kind of stop and spend time around those. And so I always knew I, I love motorcycles. And I think for, for me, um, initially motorcycling was a, was a tool to, to get me quicker and in a much more fun way to the places that I would hike to. So until I had a motorcycle on the weekends, I'd go out with my buddies and we'd hike in the desert and go to oases and hike the canyons and camp and do stuff like that. And then I, I, I guess I was, you know, I was reading the local Israeli uh, motorcycle magazines and I saw this article about the DR 600. It was like a 1986 DR 600. It had a 20 liter tank. This thing looked like it could go you know, uh, you know, do the Dakar. And it got me so excited, just the thought that, hey, I could get on that thing, pack all of my gear, carry more than what I do when I hike, and and go bigger distances. And so that, that appeal was just, um, it was uh, irresistible. Um, and then another thing happened. So I, in the, um, in, in the military, I, I flew helicopters. And so once I, once I got my motorcycle, the helicopter was also a tool to, um, to like perfect my weekend, uh, my weekend excursions on the motorcycle. Cause I'd be flying around and I'd see this beautiful Canyon 
And the first thing I do was pull out my map and, and, and follow the terrain and see if there are any trails that led to that spot. And I'd mark it on the map. And then I said, this is where I'm going next. And so I go out, go home on the weekend, uh, pack my things, get my buddies to, to come and go out and, and, and explore the desert by motorcycle. So that was the first, those were my first experiences. So I, I had, uh, a Suzuki DR600 initially. And, um, after that I got Suzuki was really the only motorcycle manufacturer apart from a couple European ones that were selling dual sports. And so I had the DR600, then I got a DR big 750. Um, I had that for a while and then I, I went back to a DR650 and then, uh, so those were the three bikes I had before I went on my uh, world tour. (laughs) Can you go back to when you were, um, when you mentioned when you were a kid and you walk into that, that Suzuki dealership, can you go back to that and just describe what that would look like as you're walking in? Well, um, it, I, we didn't even have to walk in cause I guess they would park the bikes. I just have this picture of three or four Suzuki. Uh, I think they were GS 400s with the, with the, the, the learning license plate on the back, just sitting there. And my friends and I just kind of stop and walk around at them with our, with our eyes popping out thinking, man, these things, cause we, you know, growing up in Israel, we, we got our licenses and we used to, uh, my mother's not listening. We used to race our parents' cars and, uh, just do really crazy stuff with these little European, um, you know, Citroen and, and Renault 1100 CC cars that we would absolutely, absolutely trash. And, and we do like drag races, you know, zero to 60 in 35 seconds. Um, and so the thought of getting on a, on a, on a vehicle that could, you know, we, we only heard about how motorcycles accelerate and we could only see in motorcycle magazines, what like the quarter mile acceleration numbers were. And so I think the thought of getting on a, on a motorcycle that would just be so much more powerful was um was the initial appeal i think you mentioned that you you bought your first motorcycle after you got your first military check <laughs> yeah so i um i graduated uh flight school i got my my officer's rank and then the first paycheck that came was like a big bump and i thought man i, I wonder if i could get a loan you know to to pay off this motorcycle and so i went applied for a loan and I got it and I, I bought, um, I bought my first motorcycle. It was brand, it was brand new. I was so excited. Remember I got permission to leave base and go pick up the, this bike. And, um, I was so excited. I, I rode all the way back to base and then realized I forgot all my paperwork back, back at the dealership, <laughs> but I got permission to leave base again, which was made me very happy because there's another 50 kilometers <laughs> on this new bike. So. Uh, but no, I, I remember that, that feeling and the first time, the first excursion into the desert was, uh, it was all really new and, and super exciting, which I'm sure it is for everybody who, who, you know, has a, has this kind of a dream and gets on, on a motorcycle and, and feels, feels that for the first time that, that, you know, that freedom. Yeah. And often you remember the smell of the exhaust and, and the feel of the handlebars. And there, there's certain things that really stick in your mind, in particular, if it was a, a real exciting time for you for your first bike. Yeah. And I remember I, there was nobody to teach me how to ride off road. And so I, I look back at, you know, a, a lot of really comical situations um, on the motorcycle, like my first attempt at riding up a steep, uh, sandy, loose, rocky hill. And I, I basically tried to go to go up the hill in first gear uh, at, at idle pretty much. <laughs> and I got up, you know, I went two meters up the hill and toppled over to the side. Um, and so it, it was a, it was a steep learning curve, but it was all fun. You know, at that age, you, you know, you, you follow, fall off your bike, at, you know, at speed and you kind of get up and you know, brush the dust off and, uh, get on again and continue. But it was all fun. It all sounds so American. I mean, you you going and getting a loan. And, and for anyone who doesn't know Israel and what it's like, what life is like there, I, I think you probably picture something different. The idea of you going to a dealership, buying a, a bike with a down payment and signing a loan and riding back, it's just like everybody else. Yeah, Israel Israel is a, is a modern Western country uh, in, in the Middle East. And so um, Israel is, is known for its... Uh, 
it's high tech, it's it advances in in agriculture and and in, in, in sciences and the medical field. It's a very very and it's a very progressive, um, uh, you know, socially progressive country. I think so. Yeah, it's that, that's why I was saying in, uh, earlier. It's it's growing up in Israel is in many ways not very different than growing up here. Of course, there's you know there are things that, that are unique to Israel. Um, you know, Israel was was a as a country was a, a result of of the Holocaust, and so it was proclaimed um, Israel. Um, became independent in 1948 after World War II. And it was uh, a country that was was proclaimed as a country for Jews. Because until then, you know, Jews were just, you know, outcasts and spread around uh, the four corners of the earth. Now, you mentioned about seeing the valley from the helicopter and then marking it on your map and then going and exploring it. So what is Israel like as far as backcountry, I guess, so to speak? Well, as small as Israel is, it's a very, very uh, geographically very diverse. Um, so picture uh, Vermont, uh, and Israel is about the size of Vermont. It's it's only about 500 kilometers north to south, and it probably averages about uh, oh 50 kilometers wide, or even less. So it's kind of this long north-south oriented country. Um, in the north, it's it's uh, very mountainous. You know, the highest peak is about you know, 6,000, 7,000 feet. Uh, borders with Lebanon, which is a very uh, mountainous country, and Syria, up along the Golan Heights. And as you travel south, Israel is kind of at a borderline where where the the climate, you know, changes are pretty significant. So it'll be green. It's very lush and green up in the north. Um, and as you travel south, um, about halfway down, you start you start hitting the the deserts, and the southern half of Israel is very very arid. Um, up you know, all the way down to um, the Gulf of Aqaba, which is kind of a uh, border a border point between Israel, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Egypt. And it's very the, the desert there is very arid. I think they get less than you know twenty five millimeters of of rain annually. So, um, and geographically, it's uh, we've got the valleys. We've got the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on Earth. Um, a few different regions of, of deserts and the, of course the Mediterranean coast. So there's, there's, um, there's a lot of diversity. Um, recently did uh, a tour in Israel, the, actually the first motor discovery tour in Israel that we did this last spring. And everybody came out, you know, just kind of uh, in awe about how diverse the landscape and the riding was. So most people said, well, we didn't really know Israel to be a place that offered such fantastic riding. But you know, and for me, it's surprising because I grew up there and, you know, I know every road and every trail there. So, but it was, it was kind of refreshing to hear that from, from, you know, outsiders. That's quite the diversity north to south, you know, yeah. having the lush in the north and the, and the sand and the, I mean, that sounds like the perfect riding area. Yeah. And, and also the, the, the other side of that is that most areas, for example, the south, most, because Israel is so small, military training grounds and aerial training grounds take up a lot of that, that southern half. And so th- there are a lot of firing zones that you can't enter during the weekdays because the military is just doing, you know, practicing there. But on the weekends, these places open up. So on the weekends is when we would, you know, we would go and ride in these areas that, uh, normally closed uh, during the week. At what point does photography come in for you? Well, uh, my first camera at 18 and uh, I started taking pictures of, of anything and everything, but I was, I was mostly drawn to uh, nature and landscape. I was very shy about taking pictures of, of people where uh, I had to change that because uh, later on in life, I, I landed the, the dream job at, at a, a little uh, nature magazine that uh, did a lot of adventure travel. They were affiliated with a lot of adventure travel companies and I was sent to do that kind of uh, documentary work. So I had to overcome my, um, my shyness uh, around photographing people and getting up in close proximity to people. So initially I started nature and landscape and I was shooting out of the, uh, the helicopter and, and um, on my, on my motorcycle trips. And then I picked up a video camera and then on my 
my big world tour that I did after uh, I got out of the military service. I did two and a half years of traveling and um, I was shooting, at the time it was uh, slides uh, and uh, eight millimeter uh, video. <laughs> that was my kit. <laughs> Which is a lot more cumbersome than nowadays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was before, it was before GoPros and, and miniaturized cameras with phenomenal uh, quality and before drones and mm. all of the, all the onboard shots were holding this big bulky uh, video camera, you know, with my hand and changing, changing angles and stuff like that. So, it was, oh, and of course, a Super Eight—that's not commercial quality <laughs> even at the time, right? No, no. We're going to take just a quick break, but when we come back, we've got a lot more. Stay with us. It's cold outside where I am today, which is the perfect time to talk about one of the best pieces of motorcycle gear a rider can have, and that's Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks is the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio because they are the best cold weather socks I have ever tried. The secret sauce in the Pearly Socks is that they're made with a blend of merino wool and possum fur. Now, merino wool, I've been using for many, many years. In fact, until I met Duke Lambert, Duke is the owner and inventor of Pearly's Possum Socks, I held merino wool as the in the highest regard, as, as the number one. Um, coming from a, a lifetime of outdoor experience, I've learned the value of merino wool. The warmth to weight ratio is huge. The ability to hold heat even when it's wet is incredible. The ability of the wool to dry fast is paramount for outdoors. And the incredible resistance it has to body odor, which is amazing. But adding the blend or blending in rather, the possum fur has taken this warmth thing and comfort thing to a whole other level. The possum fur adds even more qualities to the blend, and that combined with the excellent design that Duke has come up with for Pearly's Possum Socks with motorcyclists in mind, like it's designed for us, wow, it makes it the absolute best. I'm talking totally from experience here, passionate by experience. I recommend getting a couple of pairs because if you're like me, once you try them on, you're going to find yourself trying to come up with a reason not to wear them today when you're trying to pull out your socks for the day. Anyway, make sure that when you throw when you when you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's pearlyspossumsocks.com. Your tires on your bike, you choose them because you feel that they give you the best traction. Likely it's also they give you the most miles that you feel they give you the most miles for your money. We riders, we put a lot of thought into that purchase, the tires. We do that because you and I know that the tires are your sole connection between your bike and the road. It's a point where two things that are not secured, rubber and road, yet their connection is extremely important. Another connection on your motorcycle, just like that, is between your feet and your foot pegs. The connection between your boot and your foot pegs has everything to do with your ability to control your motorcycle, particularly when standing. Get foot pegs that are designed for your purpose, just like you do when you buy tires. Get foot pegs that are high quality, that will last just like you do with your tires. Get IMS Products foot pegs. IMS has a complete line of foot pegs designed specifically for adventure riders, specifically by a company that's been building the highest quality motorcycle parts since 1976, IMS Products. Make sure you throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. You mentioned the world trip. So what happens? You, you get out of the military at, uh, I, I would assume, 21. And then, I mean, I think you can kind of see where it's going. You're at the DR600. You're exploring. How, how do you come up with the idea of, of traveling the world? Well, that was, uh, so I was, uh, uh, I got out of the military at 25 because of my, my job in the military. And uh, I had, for the last six months before getting out, I had a map of Australia on the wall in my office on base. And uh, I started putting uh, needle uh, little pins where I was reading up in the Lonely Planet and any information that I could gather. I started placing pins, and like I said, for it, it was for me going on this world trip was kind of breaking loose of the the ge geographical confines of of such a small country. 
And I, I love traveling and I was very curious about, about the world and I wanted to ride motorcycles all over the world. And so I, I had an open, it was the only time, it was the first time in my life that I had a, uh, I didn't have an agenda. There was nothing on my calendar for the next 10 years. So I had a date that I was, uh, uh getting out of the military and I knew, oh, I'm just going to go traveling and we'll see what happens. And so I kind of got an open-ended ticket that I had to use within the first year, which um, took me through. It's funny, we flew, my buddy and I flew to Hong Kong uh, because that's where we knew we could get cheap video cameras. And then we flew to uh, Bangkok because that's where we knew we could get cheap airfare. So from Israel, we only had like a one-way ticket to to the, the Far East. And we got our airfare, we got our video cameras. And I got an open-ended ticket that took me through Sydney, Australia, uh, Auckland, New Zealand, some uh, Pacific Islands, and then Los Angeles. So and this so, is backpacking style. Well, this is backpacking style, but I, I knew I wanted to ride. So the first, I spent half a year in Australia um, riding around basically the, the eastern half of the continent. Um, <clears throat> and that was on a motorcycle. I had a, a Honda uh, NX650. And it was the closest thing to a Paris Dakar style looking motorcycle that I could get. <laughs> and I was kind of blinded. I walked into a dealership there and I saw it. And I, I had read an article that this, an Israeli had ridden on this new NX650. It had a little fairing. Um, and he had ridden in Australia and I said, that is what I want. And so I got this bike. It turned out to be a lemon uh, I, I was working. I had to put do so much work on that bike. A lemon. Wait, 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 you said Honda, didn't you? Yeah, it was a Honda 650 and it was a lemon. I think wow. uh, on a trip that I did, maybe 14 or 15,000 kilometers, I had to change the uh, the timing chain twice. And the thing was the thing was blowing smoke. And, and to be honest, it was blowing smoke at the dealership too. But I was so blinded by, you know, I, I just loved the way the bike looked. And we were kind of in a hurry to get on the road. Uh, but I remember taking it outside and doing uh, doing a check and kind of revving it. And the thing was blowing smoke and I still bought it. Uh, is um, this a new bike? No, it was a used bike. Oh, a used bike. Used, yeah. But um, but it did take me across. It didn't it didn't ever break down. I just kind of had to spend a lot of money that first uh, those first three months just keeping it from from breaking down. So. I'm assuming what you did was you, you saved up while you're in the military working and you're, you're living off your savings while you're traveling. Yeah. Um, I sold my motorcycle in Israel and that paid, that really paid for the first year of my, uh, of my world tour. Uh, motorcycles are super expensive in Israel. So there's, uh, something like, and I think this is still the case. There's like 150% import tax on motorcycles. Uh, that was the case at the time. Yeah. So like a bike in North America that costs, um, you know, $6,000 will, will run you like 12 and a half or $13,000 in Israel. Why do they have an import tax like that on it? Um, I don't know. It's just, yeah. it's just the Israeli strict bureaucracies that, uh, I mean, the government makes are, more money are, off the bike than the dealer does than the company. Yes. Does. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there were a lot of things that were unfavorable towards, uh, motorcyclists in Israel, uh, taxation wise. It's still very expensive to, to keep motorcycles like the um, basic insurances and basic licensings are are, are outrageous. I, I actually had a, the motorcycle, unlike in the U.S., where you can you can buy a motorcycle and it, it be your your weekend toy. Um, at the time, living in Israel, I had to choose if I'm going to own a motorcycle or a car because it was so expensive to maintain. So my motorcycle um, until I was 25, I didn't have a car. I, I just had the motorcycle. So the Honda, the NX650, so it took you where? Well, uh, we started riding, we started in Sydney and we rode up the coast of Australia up to uh, as far north as we could go. Um, and what really was limiting us was the, the river crossings because we were kind of spilling into the rainy season. And the, it just came to a point where we just couldn't cross these rivers anymore because they were just too deep. And so at that point, we... We went south, and then we then we head into outback Australia. Uh, did a few uh, outback tracks in Australia, um, which was a really cool experience. We had to take additional 
additional fuel. And uh, uh, we rode out to Ayers Rock and Alice Springs and then uh, continued south uh, to southern Australia <clears throat> and then Tasmania for a while and then kind of wrapped back up to uh, to Sydney. So the tour, the tour portion of Australia was, was three months. Hmm. Any particular hurdles you had to get over in, in Australia? No, I don't think so. It was really just kind of dodging the weather because we were really, we were just a little bit too close to the, to the rainy season for comfort. So for example, when we were doing, we were crossing an outback track, uh, say for example, towards Alice Spring, and we knew that it was going to be a, a two to three day haul. We really had to be careful um, about the, the, the weather forecast showing any kind of, uh, monsoon rains because, um, any kind of rain out there and because it's so flat, there would be like these floodplains that we would basically, um, they wouldn't enable us to, to continue. But, uh, we were, we were careful about that. You know, we were we, we, in the military, we, <laughs> we would check the weather every day. So that wasn't, uh, wasn't something that we were, uh, unaccustomed to. And where do you go after Australia? After Australia, so I, I, I worked for a few months in Australia and then I flew to New Zealand and I spent uh, five months in New Zealand exploring uh, the North and South Island. Now at the time that, that was the winter in the Southern Hemisphere and so uh, I, bought a, I bought a used car and I basically camped out of the back uh, of a car, just explored, explored uh, both islands. Oh, so you're doing the thing of buying a vehicle and leaving it in that country. You're not, you, you didn't bother shipping a vehicle around. No, I didn't ship them. Hmm. And the whole time you're doing this, you're, you're shooting photography and video or yes. film. Yeah. Shooting slides. And, um, which is very different than shooting today. Today you could be trigger happy and shoot as many pictures that you, as you want. Uh, at the time I had a quota. It was kind of like my, uh, uh, my, my budget my daily budget for traveling. So for example, when I traveled, uh, I traveled in North America, I did, you know, New Mexico to Prudhoe Bay and, and, and back down, I had a $30 a day budget, uh, 10 for gas, 10 for food and 10 for lodging. And so in, in the same way I had a budget, uh, I, I couldn't carry as much film as I would have liked to. Plus because I was traveling on a budget, uh, film is expensive. I probably on average, I probably took I don't know, five to 10 pictures a day, which today is just unheard of. But mm -hmm. I think it, what it did is that it kind of honed my, um, my, my instincts about photography. And I, I, I checked and double checked my settings, uh, every time I took a picture because a, uh, I, I couldn't afford to not get a picture right. And B, there was no way for me to to, uh, to check the result in real time. It's not like with a digital camera where you look at the you know, you, you, you replay your, your photo. So all the settings have to be set and you need to be pretty darn sure that you're getting it right the first time. Um, and then it was carrying the film and developing the, the film on the way and then sending the film, the, the slides back to Israel somehow. And there's a lot more risk too when you're shooting with film mm -hmm. because, um, it, like you said, it costs you so much money. So you mess up a roll of film. Uh, I mean, I, I'm assuming you're, you're shooting transparencies then. Uh, I was shooting slides. Yeah. Transparency. So that I, yeah, so Velvia. Yeah. 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 Velvia. Velvia, Velvia 50. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Velvia 50 was the film of choice for that sort of thing with the reds and greens. Yeah. Um, beautiful film. So you're sending these photos back for publication. No, no. At the time I wasn't pro. Mm. Uh, at the time I was just shooting, I was just shooting for fun, but I, I knew that I knew that when I got back to Israel, man, how cool would it be to get my friends together and we sit in the dark room and I, you know, show these pictures on, uh, with a wall size image. That would be so cool. And so that's why I decided to shoot, uh, slides on that tour. But th this was before I, I worked as a photographer. And actually when I, when I got back to Israel after two and a half years of traveling, so I did a year in the, in the Pacific, a year in North America, and then half a year in Africa. And I got back and at the time, while I was away, a little magazine had, had just started and they were looking for travelers with images to, uh, to share their stories and, and, and you know, have the magazine use their, their images. And a friend of mine who had traveled, uh, a different friend of mine who had traveled, it said, when I got back, you know, 
you should go talk to the editor because I know your stuff is really cool and you've traveled all over the place. And so uh, I met with the editor and, and this was at a point in time where I, I had gotten back from my big trip and I had, there was this huge question mark hovering over my head. Well, now what do I do? I've been, I've gotten used to traveling, you know, being kind of a backpacker for this long. What do I do? And my, I knew, I knew that I wanted to, to get into uh, multimedia or photography or something that had to do with advertising and imagery. And so I was literally, you know, looking for universities to sign up and go, um, to go study. But I, I met with this editor and this is like the classical being at the right place at the right time. He saw my, he saw my pictures and he said, Hey, do you, do you shoot video? And I said, well, of course. <laughs> he, said, he said, well, I'm looking for somebody to, we're, we're doing an archive. Uh, we're, we want to document all the plants and animals in Israel and make a, like a, a video encyclopedia. And, and I, I, I ran a quick calculation in my head. I'm thinking, okay, that's a job security for three years now. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, you know, of course I shoot video. And so, and I was hired, I was hired to, to, to do this, this dream job. I became the, the in-house videographer, videographer for a little magazine that is like, uh, the national, national geographic, but it's on a Israeli scale. And, and they were affiliated with, um, with like rafting companies and, and adventure companies. And so very quickly I was thrust into, uh, I, I joined these, the most incredible, expeditions, uh, as the documentarian. And that's what I did for the better part of the next 10 years. That was my, that was my niche. I was a travel adventurer, uh, documentary photographer and videographer. This magazine must have had pretty deep pockets to do something like this. I mean, I can't imagine paying somebody to go out and film, (laughs) you know, just endlessly each day. (laughs) So the, 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 the advantage for a magazine like that is that you can, anybody will go on a trip for nothing. And so the, the magazine, you know, it's funny. I laugh when you say this magazine had deep pockets because the editor would always, you know, he would pay me next to nothing. And I, I remember kind of scrounging and having to, you know, to, to select which cheese I buy because I, <laughs> I couldn't afford it. And he kept on telling me, you know, I don't know why I pay you so much. You know, you've got the perfect job. You know, I, I'd also love to travel around the world and take pictures and you know, live, live off of my dime. And I'm thinking, yes, yes, I know, but, but I really need to eat. <laughs> and so the, you know, the kind, the kinds of expeditions that, that I went on were with companies that, that said, Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna take you to the most remote rivers in the world. Uh, come join us. And so it, it was a massive adventure. And so I would go, I would go with them and shoot for the company and come back. And more often than not, that footage would end up as a documentary on Israeli national TV. And the magazine would get this cool article with uh, photos from that uh, expedition. We sort of jumped over and and you've got so much traveling in here. There's so much more that we, that we could talk about that we can't fit into this interview and this discussion, but your route though, you, you would, um, you left Australia. Did you go to South America and then come up or what was your route? No, I did. Uh, I did Australia. Uh, half a year in New Zealand for five months. I went to Fiji and Hawaii uh, for a month. And then I was in, in North America for a year. So I worked, I was in Albuquerque for five months doing odd jobs, construction. I worked for UPS for a while. And then when springtime came around, um, I bought a KLR and then I traveled. I said, I, I want to go and touch the Arctic Ocean. And so I did, I planned a trip that I started in May and I zigzagged my way up the, uh, up the West <clears throat> went all the way up to uh, Prudhoe Bay. I met a, a, a German couple, and on the the day that I hopped on the Alaska Highway, and at the time the Alaska Highway was was dirt. This is in '94, and uh, I met a German couple there that that had had flown this big Paris Dakar replica BMW, and so they were two up on this bike with cases, and you know I was riding in my jeans and. And, uh, you know, and hiking boots and, uh, we, we kind of paired up and, and we, we rode all the way up the Alaska highway and we decided to go up to Prudhoe Bay and uh, I ended up towing them back from Prudhoe Bay, <laughs> like over the Brooks range. With the KLR. Yes. With the KLR. Yeah. It's funny. I, you know, at the time BMWs to me were like, 
the ultimate adventure motorcycle. And I could just dream of owning a BMW. And they had this, at the time, the, the BMW, the GS was like a, a, a thousand or an 1100. Well, theirs was a 1150 and it had all the powers of the car, big tank. But it was a massive bike, probably, I don't know, 600 pounds plus their, all their gear and they were, and they were two up. And so on the way back from Prudhoe Bay, uh, I was riding up ahead and we were really, really low on, we were really short on gas uh, because of, I think there's just one place we could get gas on the middle of the Dalton Highway between Fairbanks and, um, and Prudhoe Bay. And, uh, and we had been told, you know, if any of us breaks down, it's like, we're going to have to pay like $3 a mile to get extracted. So it's just, we said, we have to make sure we don't break down. And so we're riding, we're north of the Brook Range, riding south, you know, I'm looking in my mirror and at one point they're not behind me anymore. So I pull over, not wanting to waste any precious fuel. I wait for a while, you know, 50 minutes go, go by and I said, okay, I got to turn back. So I turn back. And there they are a few miles back and, you know, kind of looking at the, at the motorcycle, kicking the tires. And uh, this uh, German guy says, my, my motorcycle, it just died and I, and I can't get it started. Long story short, he had an issue with his charging system. It wouldn't charge the battery up and he just couldn't go. We tried taking the battery out of the KLR and starting it up and it started up for a little bit, but it, but it, it instantly died. And so we're f- so far away from Fairbanks and I said, you know what? I remembered that on my way back to uh, to see them, I had passed this construction area, and I remember seeing like telephone cables on the laying out on the ground. So I went and I cut a piece of uh, telephone cable, like you know, 20, 30 feet long, and I wrapped it up and drove back. And we tied this telephone cable to the back of my the the gear rack on the KLR and went through the forks on his GS. And uh, I took a picture, much to the dismay of, of this guy. I said, no, no, don't take a picture. This is terrible, my BMW. And I towed them back to Fairbanks over the Brooks Range, you know, doing 50 miles an hour. And I thought, I thought man, this KLR is awesome. Uh, yeah, we spent a night on the way. We tried to, to fix his battery, but it didn't work. And the funny thing is, we got to Fairbanks. So this is like I towed him for, I think, over 300 miles. Um, we got to Fairbanks and the next day I had to go to the motorcycle shop. Uh, and the only de- dealership at the time in Fairbanks was a, a Kawasaki BMW dealership. So while I'm waiting, I talked to the guy in the parts department and I said, so what's the deal with BMWs? Are they not as reliable as people will say? And he said, well, I can take you back to our, uh, to our garage and I'll show you the closet that has the BMW parts the parts that we've taken off of bikes that have broken down. So there are drive shafts and components that fail and it's a no go. You, you just, you stop. And the, the Kawasaki closet is empty. And he says, you know, it's funny that you asked me this question. I just heard some guy towed a BMW over the Brooks range back to <laughs> Fairbanks. <laughs> and I said, Oh really? Well, word, word travels fast in little Alaska. <laughs> I can't imagine towing somebody that far. You got to become pretty good at towing at that point after 300 miles. Yeah, I'd never towed in my life. And I know I know today that that's not really the safest way to tow. Well, not for 300 <laughs> miles in particular. You're towing a loaded bike with two people on it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was nuts. Uh-huh. Especially going over the Brooks Range. I mean, you're you're climbing over this mountain range and there are turns. And, you know, for the most part, the, the Dalton Highway is pretty f- straight and flat. But I think the mountain is part is a little bit trickier. So what bike are you riding now? Well, I've had a, I've had a KTM uh, 990 adventure for a few years now. I've had KTM 990s, 950s for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, I recently purchased a uh, KTM 690 Enduro R. Uh, it's a 2019. And I absolutely love that bike. I can't stop throwing money at it. <laughs> In fact, the ride today, I'm going to, I'm checking out a new aftermarket exhaust that I just installed yesterday. So, <laughs> so yeah, you're, but I love, you're accessorizing this thing to death. Oh my God. And I don't usually, I, you know, I'm, I'm totally against farkling, but, but this bike, I just love it so much and it's a keeper. And so it's, it's my favorite, it's my favorite thumper, my favorite sub liter motorcycle that I've owned my, in my entire life. So 
Yeah. You're against yeah. Farkling. Have you actually said that to people? Have you, have you argued <laughs> that point before? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm, I'm in the world where it, it keep the bike as light as possible. And, you know, when, when I'm doing the, the, our trainings, don't over accessorize your bikes, you know, that you, you need to stay light and nimble. Um, and so I'm, I, I kind of, you know, I kind of look in disgust when I see <laughs> adventure bikes that are just that have so many accessor accessories that make them heavy. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't have any, any issues with, with accessorizing with, with stuff that is really good and it's going to improve the ride. But, um, sometimes it's just, it's just over the top. And so, so I, now you're going to have to defend the 690. Mm, yeah, no, but everything, everything I put on the 690 is super important. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> like, like the exhaust, <laughs> like the exhaust, super important. I shaved three, three kilos off the way to the bike. Three kilos. So, I mean, you could have just, you know, maybe <laughs> packed a sandwich instead of taking a soup and, could have and got, got on a diet. Got on a diet. Exactly. Maybe sweat a little before you go off for a ride. I love the justification of lightweight stuff for, for bikes <laughs> for those reasons. But, but in the exhaust, I mean, are you really getting a performance gain or is it all about sound? Okay. So I'm very analytical. So the, this isn't the first performance gain. The first thing I did was I changed the air box. And to be honest, I, I online, I've been, I've been doing research, you know, trying to, to think, to say, you know, KTM make, makes a phenomenal bike, you know, ready to race and out of the box, this bike is incredible, but I keep on seeing, you know, posts about people. And that's the problem with, um, with going on ADV rider and reading the forums <laughs> is that you end up spending so much money or you, you end up thinking that something's wrong with your bike when it's not. But anyway, that's a different story. Um, but I, I, I thought, you know, there's this new setup instead of this huge air box, I can install uh, an auxiliary tank and put uh, a smaller airbox. And hey, they say that it, it gives you more torque and more horsepower. But I couldn't find any resources where people were doing dyno runs uh, in stock form and after the modification. And so I said, well, I need to, since I don't have access to a dyno, I'm going to do the next be best thing. So I took my, I grabbed my, my GoPro. And I went out to, I selected a very specific uh, place here in Albuquerque where I could go straight and fast for a while. And I did acceleration tests, like I did roll on acceleration tests in, in fourth gear, just, you know, revving it from like from 2,500 RPM to 7,000. And then I did a roll on test in sixth gear, like uh, 55 to 80 miles an hour. And I, and, I, and I recorded these with my video camera pointed at the speedo. And that was my base point. So I went back, I have an editing system. I was able to me accurately measure um, the time between when the speed passed from 55 miles to uh, 70 miles and for the other run. And so, and I did this multiple times. I did like four runs back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to negate any um, hills or wind that there may have been. Um, and then I averaged all the results. And so I had a, a starting point. Then I installed the airbox, went out the next day, and I thought, man, this, this bike, it really responds well. But I didn't want to get too excited because I didn't want to say a lot of people, they'll hear their bike is louder and they think, oh my God, there's more power. But <laughs> that, often, that oftentimes isn't the case because I've tried it on the KLR before <laughs> and it didn't work. Um, but I went back and I did the same runs with the airbox under the same conditions, same ambient temperature, same same place exactly. And lo and behold, there's an improvement like six, 6% 6 to 12% faster or a shorter, uh, speeds. So that's, that's not insignificant. So, and now, yeah. Yeah. It's not insignificant. I mean, the dyno test by video, that's kind of cool. That's sort of like a carpenter, you know, um, maybe making a wooden door for his car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's adapted. Maybe not quite. That maybe that's not a, a real good example because yours actually works. <laughs> yeah, it but, works. but it's sort of like that. It's like taking something else and using it for that. But the thing is, though, six to twelve percent. Does the KTM six ninety really need six percent no, more power? Absolutely not. No, I mean, that's, the, the, I know, but that's the thing. I just love this bike so much, and I and I thought, well, okay. So one thing that that this does improve, apparently, and also by like the the split times that I recorded is that it, it gives you more torque and power where it counts. So this KTM, this particular motorcycle, and I've never ridden a thumper 
that behaves this way. Usually you rev a thumper and it's got good mid torque and you get to like six or 7,000 RPM and it, the, the power and the torque just flattens out and it, it begs you to shift, to shift up. Right. Mm-hmm. This motorcycle revs like a twin. I mean, you go and it just goes and goes and goes and goes all the way to red line. I've never, I've never felt anything like, and it's so smooth. And so in comparison, compared to the, to the way this motorcycle just rips at high RPM, the mid range feels relatively docile, even though it's not realistically, <laughs> but, uh, but these improvements with the airbox and, uh, the exhaust, and I'm getting another component tomorrow <laughs> that's supposed to like this, this, uh, power commander is supposed to improve it even more. It beefs up the mid range, like 3000 to 7,000 RPM. You get, you get like 15, uh, 10 to 15, uh, Newton meters more than, and that's, and that's, that's really nice. That's just for, for the normal RPM that we hang out most of the time while we're riding. That's significant. Is it necessary? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. Does it make me happy? Yes. <laughs> because you love the bike and you like to play oh, with it and it gives you an excuse to get out there and ride it again and see what's changed. Yeah. yeah. What, what kind of traveler are you when, you when you're packing your bike up and you're heading out on trips, which you're doing all the time? What kind of traveler are you? How would you describe yourself? Well, with or without camera gear. <laughs> well, what do you um, normally take? Are you always taking camera gear? Always. Yeah. So this last... Um, so I went, I, I, I got this bike all set up for, for multi-day travel. So I had before this bike, I had a WR450 and that bike was too small to do multi-day trips. It wasn't set up for, it doesn't have a rack. Um, and so it really difficult to go on multi-day trips. And so I take the 990 for that, but the 990 is much heavier. And, um, and I wanted something that I could do a little bit more hardcore riding, but still be able to camp. So I set it up for camping, so I'm taking all of my camping gear. Uh, I basically can can pack for as far as gear for camping gear and personal gear for you know three, four, five days, no problem. And you know, food you can get on the way. <clears throat> but then, if you take away the camp, the it, that in and, of, in and of itself is a relatively light uh, and small pack. But I'm taking uh, usually two GoPros. Uh, two, two still cameras. So I have a, a still camera that I do a lot of my, my video in 4k and stills cause it has a really long lens. That's one camera body. And then I'm taking another camera body, which is a, an SLR with a, a super fast wide angle lens <clears throat> that I use to do, um, astrophotography and, and time lapses. Um, at night I'm taking a small tripod and I'm taking a drone and, you know, batteries and chargers and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, it adds up. I think, uh, I, my friend was asking me and I probably actually calculated how much weight, uh, that, that takes weight and space. So, you know, it's probably kind of on the light side and in, in the camping department, um, and heavy on the, on the photography department. Mm, yeah. Especially with the drone. I mean, I imagine that takes up a fair bit of space. Yeah. It's a, it's a relatively small drone. Uh, it fits in a, relatively small, uh, kit. So that's, uh, and, and drones are incredible. I, you know, I have to say that drones have really changed, uh, photography and, and, and aerial photography and just the affordability of drones, uh, versus the quality that you can get with drones. It's just, it's unbelievable. And so my drone, and I sent you a link, uh, to the latest, one of the videos is the latest and greatest. It's a trip that I did this last fall on the motorcycle. I can program the drone to fly a specific path and at specific altitudes and be pointed in specific directions. And so I program it and then I fly it back to the starting point and I hit go and then I ride that path. So, Oh, I see. So it's not following you. Cause I was thinking not. we have this follow thing, but then you're going to get that static shot where it's always exactly, following. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. And with this one, I can start low. Like it's, it's flying beyond the trees right next to me. And it'll slowly uh, climb so you can see the, the landscape that I'm in and I can exit the shot. And so you get these much more beautiful cinematic shots with being able to program 
the drone uh, pre-program it to, to do a pass. Then you just need to make sure that you're riding in the frame, and which is a little bit dangerous because <laughs> I'm constantly looking down at my phone to make sure that I'm, I'm in the frame. But Oh, you're seeing but, a live feed. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. mentioned your camping gear is quite quite light. Just give me mm-hmm. a, a quick rundown in your camping gear because I'm, I'm curious about this this lightweight pack you've got. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a, a little. It's a it's a little uh, one man tent, uh, some Kelty or other that I got, and it's really pretty, and that's very important for the shots. <laughs> uh, oh, you're like, serious about that, just on because I've seen your tent in in some no, of photography. It's amazing because it's a it's this brilliant orange yellow, well, orangey, I guess. Oh, that's the old tent. My new tent is like this turquoise blue slash green. So mm. that's that's my new tent, and it's uh, ten ounces lighter than my old tent. My old. Tent. Oh. <laughs> um, and I have a camping mattress, my my sleeping bag, and I have to say I, I do bring some creature comfort. So, for example, I bring a chair, and I've never done that before. But I realized that having a chair at the end of the day, one of those little foldy out chairs that it looks kind of like a tent it's got t- like tent pole style uh sticks that you unfold and then it's got that fabric piece so you're sitting in this nice perfect reclining uh situation that's really nice at the end of the day to just kind of sit down have your coffee and um you know stargaze you know i've had this conversation with other people about when it comes to chairs and, and i don't take a chair with me but I, I i do like for instance if i go with a jeep then i have my my stool with me um, where I can sit down and I know it makes a huge difference, but for some reason on the bike, I just can't bring myself to taking a chair with me. Um, and, and I guess I'm probably missing out with those times where maybe I'll stand around or I quite often will just sit on whatever, you know, you find a log, preferably not a rock, uh, depending on where you are temperature wise, but yeah, well, that's the thing in Canada, you can find logs to sit on in, in the, in the Southwest, there's nothing, there's mm. a desert. <laughs> right. Okay. No, you can find plenty of rocks, but no, there, there's something about that comfort. Cause I, you know, until now I just, I just lie on the ground, which is fine. But I, I think the chair is, you know, I was weighing, you know, the, the benefits and plus I had a, an extra pocket in my, in my, uh, in my, my setup, um, my bag that I have on the, on the bike, I had a, a perfect place to put it. So, um, so I bring a chair. And I bring a little inflatable pillow because I need to have a pillow. Um, yeah, you know, coffee kit, and I'm, I've gone to uh, freeze-dried food bags, which is makes it's really convenient because all I need to do is boil water and and add that. Because usually, usually uh, around the times of day where you're supposed to be cooking meals, like early in the morning, you cook a breakfast, or at night when you get into camp, you cook you cook dinner. I can't be bothered because that's the perfect time to be doing photography. So I'm not going to waste my time uh, cooking. I'd much rather be spending my time, you know, getting beauty shots and stuff like that. So you're just boiling water and pouring it into your your freeze dried pouch, sort of thing, and eating right there. Yeah, and it's better than anything that I could cook up myself. Anyway, so. <laughs> Do you use a, a top box? Uh, no. So I've I've got a, a Moscow Moto Reckless 80 system, which is intended to. Uh, to just be thrown over a bike that doesn't have a, a hard case rack and it just kind of rests on the side panels and, um, and on the, and on the rear rack, but they have a really good cinching system where it basically doesn't budge while you ride. And so it's got the side bags, uh, with a few different compartments and you, you're going to put, uh, dry bags into these, uh, like these holsters that come in the set. Uh, and then there's a, there's a place to put a, another duffel bag on the top, which would go behind you. Um, and then I, I throw my, my drone in a little, like a Pelican case on top of that. And that sits, uh, behind me. It's a little bit, uh, feels a little bit cramped if I've got a full camelback. So I wear a camelback for, for water. And then, uh, in addition to that, all I really have is a small tank bag on the tank and that, that holds my, my main camera. Um, so that's pretty much it. Do you have a photograph of your bike loaded up? Yes. I want to put that in the show notes. Uh, if you, okay. if you want to send it to me, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes so that listeners can go and, and check it out and see what the load looks like. Okay. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but, um, we're going to have to get you back on again to do that <laughs> another time. Okay. Brock, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
Gagan, professional photographer and motorcycle tour guide. You can find out more about Barack at his website, nagan.com, spelt just as his last name, N-A-G-G-A-N. And as usual, that link is in the show notes as well. Barack sent us a whole bunch of photographs, great photos, really great photos that we have in the show notes for this episode on our website at adventureriderradio.com. And of course, there's a link in there to Barack's website as well. want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much for listening and being a part of it. Thank you to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and we sure hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did making it. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. Before you do, I just want to remind you that we do another show called ARR Raw. That comes out monthly. We have another one coming up soon, and that you have to subscribe separately for. And we would love it if you would go and rate both of our shows everywhere you find podcasts. Obviously, I'm looking for a five-star rating here. But if you drop by anywhere, iTunes or or Podbean or wherever it is that you're listening and give us a rating, throw in some comments there, that would really help us. We would appreciate it. It helps get the word out out about the show. And if you're not doing it already, we need your support because it's built on a model of advertising and listener support. And we want to do great things with Adventure Rider Radio, but we need you behind it to help make things happen. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on support. And don't forget that every episode that we do has show notes. Have a look at those. Drop us your comments at the bottom of the page. Time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks for listening. My name is Jim Martin. Talk to you next week. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 